Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, and school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censured at the whim of government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. Hello and welcome to Whistlestop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. This is the story of Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court and his defeat four months later, one of the greatest battles in Supreme Court history and a critical moment in the modern history of American partisanship. It was the flashpoint that kicked off our nearly constant state of flashpoints. Our whistle stop today is June 26, 1987, and President Ronald Reagan is looping the blue ink over the pages of his leather-bound diary. The brisk entries in the diary of Ronald Reagan are charming and human. How human? Sometimes matters of great weight are mixed in with the chief executive's most prosaic recordings. And so it was when the consequential news arrived in his ear that Justice Lewis Powell, the swing vote on the Supreme Court, was retiring, allowing the 40th president to name a replacement that could change the course of American political and cultural life. The entry on June 26th read, A short but busy day. I started taking the go lightly at 7.30 a.m., 8-ounce glass, and every 15 minutes thereafter for 13 glasses. All preparation for my checkup. At staff time, learned Justice Powell was retiring from Supreme Court. I'll have an appointment to make. Go lightly for the blessedly uninitiated is a laxative, a colon cleaner that prepares the intestine for the annual examination recommended for all adults aged 45 and older. When a president travels, it is known as a presidential movement. But in this case, the Go Lightly initiated a series of movements that rendered its temporary host into a condition of highly limited movement. And yet, Justice Powell was retiring. Reagan had the chance by replacing the key swing vote on the Rehnquist Court to reverse, at least this is how conservatives saw it, a corrosive liberal judicial philosophy of expansive protected rights that had ruled American judicial life for nearly half a century. What liberals saw in Powell's resignation was a vital threat to gains for blacks, for women, and to the rights of the innocent caught in the criminal justice system. They worried that Reagan would name somebody with a strictly limited view of the Constitution. In other words, if something, something was not explicitly written into the Constitution, then the federal courts did not have a right to protect it. The Bork nomination was born of a new kind of politics, we should remember, that emphasized judicial purity to build support among culturally conservative voters. The liberal interest groups that roared back and fought tooth and nail against Bork's nomination set the conditions for years more of exactly the same. And we'll see all of this in the echo of the nomination hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's nomination to the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh also replaces the swing vote on the court, or quasi-swing vote, in Anthony Kennedy. And his elevation is considered by conservatives as a way to cement the rightward course of the court. We also see, of course, the highly partisan nature of the, of the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. 
More Americans oppose the confirmation of Kavanaugh to the court than any other nominee in recent history, according to a poll from the nonpartisan Pew Research Center. 41% of adults surveyed support Kavanaugh's confirmation. 36% oppose it. That's the highest unfavorability ranking or lack of opposition going all the way back to 2005 when George W. Bush picked John Roberts. The partisan gap over Kavanaugh's nomination is about twice as wide as it was for Roberts. The Pew survey found, which is to say that Republicans and Republican-leaning adults were 57 percentage points more likely than Democrats to say that the Senate should confirm Kavanaugh. So that's your partisan gap, 57 points apart. And it is in this chasm, in this gap, in this gorge uh, that we also find, or we can argue, was cleaved by uh, the battle over Judge Bork. The four-month Bork drama, one of the longest in nominating history, would mint new language. To be Borked would mean you'd been the victim of character assassination. Now, that's not my definition. That's the way the Oxford English Dictionary puts it. Here's what they say. To defame or vilify a person systematically. That's to be Borked. Though, for a justice who lost his battle in the Senate 58-42 to with six Republicans voting against him, it clearly was an open question whether it was his character that was attacked or his qualifications. The confirmation drama would star a wounded president seeking for late in his second term glory. It would also star a rising senator hoping to succeed that president whose political fall from these ambitions may have created the conditions that ultimately blocked the president's man from the job. The nomination changed everything, maybe forever, Tom Goldstein told NPR. He's the publisher of the SCOTUS blog. Republicans nominated this brilliant guy to move the law in this dramatically more conservative direction. Liberal groups turned around and blocked him precisely because of those views. Their fight legitimized scorched-earth ideological wars over nominations at the Supreme Court. And to this day, both sides remain completely convinced they were right. The news about Justice Powell and that he was retiring set off a panic on the left. Here's how Linda Greenhouse wrote about it in the New York Times. It was not that liberal organizations far outside the Reagan administration's orbit had received advanced word of Judge Bork's selection. It was something more intuitive, a kind of metaphysical shudder that ran through the liberal community. That was Linda Greenhouse. Now this from Kate Michaelman, the executive director of the National Abortion Rights Action League, upon hearing that Justice Powell was retiring. The right to safe and legal abortion has never been in greater jeopardy. Justice Powell was the pivotal vote on the court. The next appointee will determine the future health and well-being of American women and their families. Powell had said in 1971, upon donning the robes, that he would stay only 10 years. Well, at this point, it was now 15 years that he'd been in the saddle, so liberals had been pretty much holding their breath and up on tiptoe and uh, frightened for a while that he would ultimately make this decision. And so Michaelman, continuing her, when she heard this news, she said, our worst fears have been realized. Powell had been named by Nixon, but he was not a doctrinaire conservative. In the same way that John Paul Stevens, named by Ford, was not a doctrinaire conservative, nor was Bush's, George Herbert Walker Bush's justice, David Souter. There is a little collection of what, for the purposes of this episode, we will call the apostate judges, judges picked by Republican presidents who did not hold the culturally conservative views. And this group of judges are what frighten conservatives when Republican presidents don't immediately pick the right choice. And that was what was on the table when Powell retired. Powell was the swing vote. 4-4 polarized bench. He provided the decisive fifth vote for the liberal wing, though, 
on issues like abortion, separation of church and state, and affirmative action. When Justice Anthony Kennedy retired, and that's Kavanaugh is replacing Kennedy. When Justice Kennedy retired, the New York Times ran a headline, In influence, if not title, it has been the Kennedy Court. Courts are named after the Chief Justice, but they were calling it the Kennedy Court, even though Justice Roberts is the Chief Justice. So, too, was it the case that when Chief Justice Warren Burger was the Chief Justice of the court, it was nevertheless called the Powell Court because he held this same pivotal fifth vote position that Anthony Kennedy, who's now retiring and uh, President Trump would like to replace with Brett Kavanaugh, Powell, Kennedy, roughly the same people. Obviously, smart whistle-stop listeners out there know and this is not a spoiler because you know Justice, you know Judge Bork never made it on the, on the bench. But that Kennedy ultimately is the one that Reagan nominates after Bork goes down. So you see this connection between Kavanaugh and Kennedy, uh, at least in time and space, uh, if not ideology, certainly. All right, back to Powell. The ACLU had declared Powell the most powerful person in America. Although he voted the conservative line 80% of the time, the other 20%, Powell, had voted against overturning Roe v. Wade, against permitting school prayer. The ACLU counted 20 major civil liberties decisions in the 86 and 87 term where the vote was 5 to 4. Powell voted in the majority every time. This is uh, from Ethan Bronner in Battle for Justice, which is one of the books I'm relying on heavily for in this account. Here's what he wrote. For Washington's liberals, it would have been hard to invent less welcome news. He's writing there about the Justice Powell resignation. The court was undergoing a steady rightward movement since the 1970s. Reagan had already named Justice Scalia to the court, and he'd elevated the court's most conservative member, William Rehnquist, to chief justice. Though he'd also named Sandra Day O'Connor, too, who was less conservative, there was every indication and belief that Reagan would name someone to replace Powell more in the Scalia mold than in the O'Connor mold. Reagan had been talking a lot about conservative justices in his public remarks. More Here's more from Broner. The lobbyists remembered exactly where they were when they got the news. They received it the way they recalled where they were a quarter of a century earlier when they had heard that President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Ralph Neese, the executive director of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, said everyone realized immediately what was going to be at stake and our lives would be consumed, obsessed by the fight over the Powell seat. Mind you, this was a freak out in advance of Bork being named. This is just the first stage freak out. Okay, this is just Powell. These are liberal reactions to give you some sense of the stakes. And these stakes were dry aged and marbleized. I mean, real anniversary dinner style stakes. I mean, you didn't need a one on these stakes. Though we've certainly added enough sauce with the pun. Moreover, it wasn't just that Powell was leaving. The liberals feared those on their team who also might exit. In addition to Powell, liberals had increasingly aging allies on the court. Thurgood Marshall, 79. William J. Brennan, 81. Harry A. Blackman, 79. So this was a threat specifically on the 5-4 decisions, but also they felt like they saw the whole darn thing crumbling. Again, when you look at the aging justices on the liberal side of the vote these days— and a potential two-term Donald Trump, people have some of the same uh, amplifying fears. All right, so what were the conservatives doing? Well, they were reacting with delight. As much as their liberal counterparts were in knee-knocking fear, the conservatives were totally delighted. Why? Because they could reshape the court. But first, they had to win an internal struggle against the quote-unquote pragmatists who might want to block, these are Republicans in the Reagan administration who might want to block a conservative pick like Bork. 
Why were they pragmatists? Well, these people, so named, and, and Chief of Staff Howard Baker would be the chief among them, worried about whether a conservative justice, a conservative nominee, could make it through a Senate controlled by Democrats. And if Reagan put up a nominee who was too conservative and he got blocked by Democrats, that would be a problem for the president. Make him look bad. Conservatives wanted to avoid naming another Powell, obviously a Republican pick who hadn't hit the high notes on the on the cultural hymnal. And then they also remembered the history of Harry Blackman, who was appointed by Nixon, Nixon, who had also been liberal. And of course, I mentioned John Paul Stevens and Ford. So here's how Mark Gittenstein, who Mark Gittenstein is a fellow. He was the chief lawyer for Biden on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which ends up handling the Bork nomination. So he's the chief lawyer on the committee. He wrote a great book called Matters of Principle. So here's how he frames the stakes for Ronald Reagan in a quote from somebody in the White House, or a conservative. This is a conservative being quoted by Gittenstein. This is the last chance Reagan has to leave any legacy whatsoever on social and civil rights issues. Remember, this is 1987. Reagan's out at the end of 88. A quote in the New York Times spooked conservatives about this battle between conservatives and pragmatists. It was sourced to a White House aide, and here's what the White House aide said. For the first time, a nominee will have to go before a body not controlled by your party, so you have to take extra special care that the appointment is confirmable. The body in front of which the nominee would go, of course, was the Senate, and the Senate had switched control. Reagan had lost it in 86. It's part of the general conditions of this time period that Reagan is on his heels. Uh, we'll get to Iran-Contra in a minute, which was in full flower. But also he'd lost in 86. So Reagan, who has created a modern victory uh, record in 1984 uh, by uh, walloping Fritz Mondale in the general election, is nevertheless in political issue, trouble here. And that White House quote from the pragmatist is basically saying, you, but you should recognize the fact that Democrats are in control of the Senate. Alan Simpson, Republican senator, from Wyoming, and the GOP Senate whip, right, the guy who knows how to count the votes, said on Face the Nation, a broadcast with which I know you're all familiar, he warned conservatives to be realistic and, quote, consider the issue of confirmability through a democratically controlled Senate. That's called real life in Washington. That was the voice of the conservative pragmatist. So conservatives started to target Baker. The eyes of all conservatives are on Howard Baker, said Richard Vigory, who you'll remember Richard Vigory from previous episodes is the direct male guru who, who started and was a part of helping conservatives go around the mainstream media, go around the, the establishment of the party and put pressure on GOP lawmakers from the grassroots. More from Vigory. If conservatives lose the Supreme Court, we will hold Baker responsible. And he will bear that mark on his forehead for his, the rest of his entire life. Now, in the inside game, Strom Thurmond, South Carolina senator, a conservative who spearheaded the attack on LBJ's famously defeated court pick Abe Fortas, who you all remember from the uh, whistle stop about Abe Fortas. Thurmond, in this narrative, calls Joe Biden on the phone. Biden, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrat, and says, hey, let's strike a deal. Before Reagan names Bork and ruins everything or some other crazy conservative who will never get through the Senate, let's the two, you and me, Joe, settle in on a consensus pick. Then we'll present it to the White House with a bow around it and say, hey, look, Democrat, Republican, we've gotten together. He's going to get the votes to get through. This will look good for the president. It'll be a victory. It's all done and dusted. 
Now, of course, Thurman was suggesting one of his former aides as the consensus pick. Well, that didn't go anywhere because inside the administration, the conservative forces were well positioned to make their case and to ultimately win because the Reagan administration was designed to elevate conservative judicial picks. It wasn't just their philosophy that governed this. It was that this was a political imperative. And that was the Reagan innovation and why we want to stare at this little passage here we're, we're in for a moment. This is not just a fight about Bork. This is not just about partisanship. Well, it is about partisanship, but it's, it's also about a change in the way judicial nominations are, are presented specifically within Republican politics, but also within our politics in general. And since the issues that the judiciary deal with are so much hotter and, and uh, more fraught, it's why they go to the heart of the zesty partisan feelings that surround nominations, but also surround elections. So it's kind of at the heart of some of the most powerful energy in these in these partisan fights. And that's that's that that gets a real uh, ramping up during the Reagan years where there is this connection between a political constituency, the conservative values voters and naming justices. Okay, have I belabored that enough? The Reagan administration, more than its predecessors in either party, had tied judicial picks to the maintenance of this key political constituency. That added to the stakes. It wasn't just the eggheads who cared about judicial philosophy and ideology. Cultural conservatives did. Why did they? Because Reagan and his allies told them to care about it. Promising judicial picks that they would like was a key way to placate that important constituency and keep them voting for Republicans. This operation to maintain this and to, to do this was run out of the Justice Department. Ed Meese was the ideological leader. Of course, he's the attorney general. But the foot soldier who carried on the mission or one of the foot soldiers who carried out the mission was none other than John Bolton. You may have heard his name in the news and the mustachioed conservative who Gittenstein writes was at the center of the Bork nomination is obviously also uh, the national security advisor. And here's what Gittenstein writes about Bolton in this key moment between Powell's retirement and Bork's ultimate naming. Here's the way Bolton saw things. Bolton had to push the Bork nomination internally before the White House, quote, before the White House chickens out and named someone less controversial. What we don't have a lot of evidence here of, at least in what I've seen, and not from Reagan's diaries, is that Baker was really as pragmatic as everybody thought he was. I mean, he understood the nose counting in the Senate for sure, but I don't see a lot of, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of Baker saying, oh, this is going to tank. Um, Anyway, that doesn't matter. The conservatives in the Justice Department and elsewhere thought that's what Baker was up to. Now, the reason that Bork mattered, and this is important, I think, was not just that he had the right decisions on these various issues, but as Susan Garment put in Commentary Magazine in 1988 in her piece, The War Against Robert H. Bork, she put it this way, to conservatives, Bork was far more than a collection of views. He had become a symbol of the intellectual force of contemporary American conservatism and an exemplar of its success in challenging previously dominant liberal ideas. So Bork was important not just to change the 5-4 the back in a conservative direction, but also because he would be able to use the platform of the court to win the larger cultural arguments, to influence jurisprudence for, for generations not just in his decisions, but in the thrust of his public thinking. Here's the final bit on the connection between politics and judicial nominations. Reagan had come to office on the strength of values voters, evangelicals, people who cared about the issue of abortion. He told those voters that he was going to allow and protect school, prayer in school, and that he was going to limit abortion in the wake of Roe v. Wade. 
Well, Reagan didn't have that much success on those things legislatively. And he even called for a constitutional amendment to ban abortion because he had been unsuccessful legislatively. Uh, and he had to show his constituents that he was up to do so, doing something. But he wasn't making the kind of progress. His picks to the court, O'Connor and uh, Scalia had not turned things around. And conservatives thought Reagan basically was not pushing hard enough. And his top aide, Lynn Nofsinger, confirmed their fears. Uh, he's quoted in Gittenstein's book, and he says this. Nofsinger says this. People forget that Ronald Reagan is a practical politician as well as a zealot on some issues. And he knows you're not going to shove that stuff through Congress no matter how much he wants it, certainly not with the makeup of Congress today. Other things like taxes, the budget, and summits have superseded the social agenda, and they always will. Well, that's not what conservatives wanted to hear, and particularly Ed Meese over at the <laughs> over at the Justice Department. So what happened was, while Reagan was not pushing through the conservative agenda, conservative ideological social agenda through legislation and other moves, internally over at the Justice Department, Ed Meese was working on a way to pull off these cultural victories through the courts. Bruce Fine, who was a Justice Department official, put it this way. It became evident after the first term that there was no way to make legal legislative gains in many of the areas of social and civil rights. The president had to do it by changing jurisprudence. Reagan's communications director, Pat Buchanan, argued that the appointment of two justices to the Supreme Court would, quote, do more to advance the social agenda, school prayer, anti-pornography, anti-busing, right to life, and ending quotas in employment than anything Congress can accomplish in 20 years. So that sounds familiar, maybe even almost a cliche today. But the norm before had been tilted more towards picking judicial nominees who showed that they could keep an open mind, had strong legal qualifications, and good character. It was those looser criteria that had, in fact, allowed, said conservatives, people like Powell to get picked and then go off on the wrong direction. Now, middle-of-the-road types would say, whoa, what do you mean wrong direction? We're picking them for their brains for their ability to decide, for their sobriety, for their discernment, and they look at the facts before them and measure them against the Constitution and make the right decision. Conservatives wanted something more locked in before they put anybody on the court. So this became a part of Reagan's stump speeches in 1986 as he campaigned for senators arguing that Republicans didn't want, sorry, that, that a voter shouldn't elect Democrats because Democratic senators, quote, would be deciding who our judges are. So there's a distinction here. Jackson, Andrew Jackson, big fight with the court, the Taney court, uh, FDR, big fight with the court packing, huge cataclysms of political nature with those two presidents. But what Reagan had done was create this political connection. It was written into DOJ in a way that begins or, or escalates this symbiotic relationship between judicial selections and whipping up the base that we think is so familiar today. And how familiar is it? I think you can argue and make a pretty strong case that Mitch McConnell's decision to block Merrick Garland and Donald Trump's immediate response to a question by a really first-rate moderator in a um, campaign debate about this, when he said the response to Garland, to Scalia's death, should be delay, delay, delay. It made the Trump election about the Supreme Court. And, and for many voters that I talked to, they said, yes, they had all of these objections to Donald Trump, but because he could name a conservative to the Supreme Court, a conservative that he'd already, he'd already put out a list of people he would name, that they would vote for him because he would be naming somebody to the court and that would lock in the court for 40 years. So this 
tightening of the relationship that Reagan really escalates, you could argue gets to its furthest point. And by the way, in the Judge Kavanaugh nomination and court fight, uh, sorry, nomination fight, confirmation fight, depending on how tricky and sticky things get for the president, getting the president's conservative nominee onto the court to replace Anthony Kennedy, who sometimes voted with the liberal side, could be the thing that keeps members of Congress from putting too much pressure on the president or upsetting things too much for fear of upsetting the conditions that would create another conservative person on the court. Okay, so that's my attempt to draw that line between this new escalation in Reagan and what we're seeing today. All right, now, there's another matter at play back in 1987, and that was that uh, the Iran-Contra scandal was, was being examined in congressional hearings right at that time. Okay, so the congressional Iran-Contra hearings would dominate that summer. And this is how, and so the president was weakened. And so Senator Gordon Humphrey, a conservative from New Hampshire, said, if Ronald Reagan is looking for an issue to regain the initiative and he's dead in the water because of this Iran-Contra business, then this is it. This being the naming of a new justice to the Supreme Court. All right, now here's our good friend, uh, David Broder. Long may he rest in peace in a piece entitled Lame Duck Reagan May Fly Again. On Sunday, the New York Times had a front-page headline, Reagan Prospects as Leader Dim, and CBS did a long television piece on the same theme. They are rarely wrong, period. But oddly enough, Reagan has just been handed two, maybe three, golden opportunities to make them eat their words. Clearly, Reagan's standing has been badly damaged by the Iran-Contra affair, and he remains at risk until Oliver North and John Poindexter have said their pieces. But investigating Democratic senators such as Oklahoma's David Boren will tell you that their constituents still are pulling for Reagan to finish his term with his head held high. And contrary to the current Washington theories, the instruments of his recovery are now visible. The Powell vacancy is sheer bliss for Reagan. Third appointment of his tenure allows him to replace the swing man on a whole series of social issue questions crucial to the Reagan constituency. First of all, the idea that you had a Democratic Oklahoma senator tells you, of course, where the, how the Senate has shifted. But the key point here is that picking a conservative who juiced up his base and who would allow Reagan to claim a big victory on the social issues agenda, which had been somewhat stalled, was a real boon for a fellow who was stumbling as a result of Iran-Contra. While conservatives were fighting their internal battle, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Joe Biden was having his own wrestling match with himself and his own party. The Delaware senator was running for president. He had already addressed the issue of Robert Bork when his name came up during a previous court vacancy. That would say that would be the vacancy that elevated Scalia. At that time, Biden had talked about Bork. He said to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Say the administration sends up Bork, and after our investigation, he looks like another Scalia. I'd have to vote for him. Now, we should just pause and examine this norm. Can you imagine today a number of Democratic senators saying, yeah, say, you know, Judge Kavanaugh was another Scalia. I'd have to vote for him. What? No, of course not, because things have become more ideological, and the norm that you would elevate anybody who just was a smart jurist and who is, you know, didn't have any skeleton in his closet. Um, that has changed. And, it, and, it, and one of the reasons it changed is the Bork nomination. 
Okay, so back to the Bork nomination. Okay, but when Biden had said that to the Philadelphia Inquirer, it was a different situation. Now that Powell was retiring, it was no longer a hypothetical. And, and, and it was a hypothetical when Biden talked to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Powell was still on the court. It was, it was long before. But it's also why the political people tell their clients, which is to say politicians, not to answer hypothetical questions or, as Biden was doing in this case, not to muse out loud hypothetically. What, of course, had changed since Biden had told that to the Philadelphia Inquirer was that Bork was now not just going to be filling a slot. He was going to determine the direction of the court, which made his selection much more consequential. So Biden had to search for a rationale to explain his switch from his Philadelphia Inquirer statement without looking hypocritical or like he was switching under political pressure from liberal interest groups. Because it's not just about a single guy running for president. He's also the chairman of the committee. And other Democrats have to worry about being uh, characterized by the negative impressions of the chairman of the committee. If you're a member of the Senate, a conservative Democrat, and it looks like the chairman of the committee is just call, is just answering the tune of the liberal interest groups, then that makes your vote a vote for the liberal interest groups if you vote against Bork. So how Biden gets framed matters to whether Senate conservative Democrats can vote against Bork. The reason it's such a challenge for Biden as a presidential candidate is that he was running kind of to the right uh, in the Democratic Party. Well, to the right of somebody like Ted Kennedy anyway. Here's how Paul Taylor wrote about it in the Post at the time. Biden has scolded Democrats for being too wedded to special interests and their fossilized policy prescriptions. So the special interests were skeptical of Biden during this period between Powell's resignation and whoever Reagan names. Here's Kate Michaelman putting pressure on Biden after the Powell resignation. She said Biden should take time from his busy schedule to exercise the kind of leadership we expect from the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. If he can't, he'd be wise to rethink carefully about resigning the chairmanship. What she wanted to do was have Biden put pressure on the White House to pick somebody other than a conservative like Bork. Again, Bork's not been named, but everybody expects he will be or that somebody conservative of his type would be. Here's another way in which we know that Biden was running against the special interests of his own party. When he made that comment about Bork back during the Scalia nomination, here's the full quote. After our investigations, if he looks a lot like Scalia, I'd have to vote for him. And if the special interest groups tear me apart, that's the medicine I'll have to take. So, and by the way, special interest groups, I mean, Biden's talking about civil rights groups, women's groups, um, African-American groups. So he's positioning himself in democratic politics as the truth teller, the one true guy who's going to stand up against the, the um, uh, liberal interest groups and um, the captives on the left of the party. So, and here's, here's uh, Gittenstein about, remember, Gittenstein is the, the top Biden lawyer, and so obviously a Biden ally. And he's written in his book, The Political Thinking for Biden, in terms of his, his uh, oh, being open about running against special interests in the Democratic Party. And it's just very funny to hear this political analysis, and you'll probably understand why. Here's Gittenstein. If past nomination struggles were any precedent, Biden would succeed only if he, rather than the groups, controlled the strategy. It was critical that he and his staff not be portrayed as puppets of the civil rights community and the women's movement. 
So these days, of course, party candidates wouldn't mind being seen as puppets of the, of the two largest and most powerful constituencies in their party. But in this case, Biden was going for independent middle-of-the-road voters who were looking for candidates that were who, were, who were not looking for candidates that were too liberal. So he was trying to position himself against the interest groups of his party. And yet now as chairman of the committee, he's got the liberals saying, do as we say. So politically, with respect to his presidency, he doesn't want to do what liberals have to say. And also because he knows there are conservative Democrats um, who might not vote for, who might get forced to vote for Bork if being opposed to him looks like the pet rock cause of the super liberals. He's got strategic reasons inside the Senate not to look like a liberal uh, puppet. And he's got presidential ambition reasons for not wanting to do that. Hear more from Gittenstein. Each time a representative of the civil rights community spoke off the cuff in anger, it tended to limit the effectiveness and flexibility of moderates like Biden. Uh, Flexibility and effectiveness in killing the nomination. Biden didn't want Bork on the bench. Um, So, uh, as as Richard Ben Kramer writes, Joe could think of three or four Southern Democrats who'd have to be for Bork if the contest came down to Bork v. Kennedy. So this dynamic that I've described explains why conservatives were happy to paint Biden as a captive of the special interests of his party, because it would mean that his hearings could be framed as a partisan event rather than as a legitimate discussion of the facts. So here's George Will giving it to giving it to Biden with a knee to the groin. Again, we're in the pre we're in the Bork hasn't been named yet. And here's Will writing about Biden. Biden heard from liberal groups like the Federation of Women Lawyers whose director decreed concerning Biden's endorsement of Bork, endorsement of Bork meaning in the Philadelphia Inquirer several years earlier, he should redact his endorsement. I think she must mean retract there. Anyway, suddenly Biden, this is Will, suddenly Biden was allergic to medicine and began to position himself to do as bidden. Either Biden changed his tune because groups were jerking his leash or worse, to prepare for an act of preemptive calculation. It's a little fancy, that sentence there. The medicine, of course, he's referring to is from that quote where he said, uh, if the special interest groups tear me apart, that's the medicine I'll have to take. And that's Richard Ben Kramer writing um, in uh, What It Takes. So at this point, after Powell, the best Biden can try and do is play the inside game. So he's going to make the case to Chief of Staff Baker that the fight would just be too tough and controversial in the Senate and that the White House didn't want such an ugly fight and, and obviously Biden didn't want that fight either. So in late June, he interrupted his campaign, flew back to Washington to meet with Meese, the attorney general, and Baker, the chief of staff. And it was clear when they met that the cake was already baked. And this is an account from Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes. Meese and Baker showed up with a list of candidates, a nice list with women, even a Democrat, very reasonable. And Joe went down the list with them, marking off the ones he thought would be trouble. Bork would be trouble. That's what he'd come to say. But this was like choosing sides after everybody knew what team they were on. The deal was down. There wasn't going to be any fight in the White House. Only Joe didn't know that. So he walked out and told the press that they'd had a fine meeting. He hoped the president would name a candidate with an open mind, someone who would not disrupt the balance of the court. He thought there was a chance. It was only when Biden got back in the air, which is to say on the same day he had the meeting with Meese and Baker and told them that Bork would be a problem. Now I'm going back into the Kramer account. It was only when he was back in the air on his way to Houston for the big debate 
that bells went off again in Washington. Reagan had moved expeditiously. Not only had he named Robert Bork, but he'd named the confirmation of Robert Bork as his number one domestic priority. Again, Kramer there echoing what the point we were making earlier. Number one domestic priority because when you're stalled on the social issues, you do it through other means. In this case, naming people of the Supreme Court. Finally, here's what Ben Kramer writes. Reagan was convinced the Bork fight would show he was back in the saddle. It would give the revolution focus again, haul it out of the swamp of Iran-Contra. We didn't know it at the time, but that first Reagan diary entry should have spared everyone all the -the behind-the-scenes jockeying to keep Bork from being named to the bench. On June 30th, that's two and a half days after Reagan first gets word of Powell's retirement, Reagan wrote about his first meeting after the colon uh, exam, to find a replacement for the retiring justice. Meeting with our lawyers, Reagan wrote, Ed Meese and Howard on Supreme Court vacancy. We are together on thinking it should be Robert Bork. But it's with great pleasure and deep respect for his extraordinary abilities that I today announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert H. Bork to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'll have more on the Robert Bork nomination, the fight, what ultimately happened, and the political fallout that we live with today in our next episode. Meanwhile, we'd love to hear what you think about the Whistle Stop podcast. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. You'll find Whistle Stop in the history portion of the iTunes podcasts. Leave that review. It helps us spread the word. Also, you can just spread the word. Our producer, editor, and shaper is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. He's one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson helps Brian Rosenwald turn the double play, crunching through all of that material and not mixing metaphors the way I do and making sure that I don't blunder too much. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio and all the others here who help us make this episode happen on the CBS end. Thanks all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more on the nomination of Robert Bork.